Today's episode of The Road Taken with CT and Bayo is presented by State Farm. State Farm agents know that in life, anything can happen. You might buy the car of your dreams on an impulse. Or come home to a broken-in apartment. Maybe say, oh my God, yes, to a proposal from your significant other and start a family. Or find yourself in a fender bender when you least expect it. Whatever happens when it comes to home and auto insurance, State Farm agents are there to help. And with over 19,000 agents in neighborhoods across the U.S., there could be one just around the corner. So contact an agent today. Because no matter what neighborhood you're from or whatever stage of life you're in, check out statefarm.com today to find an agent in your neighborhood. State Farm. Talk to an agent today. Today's show is also brought to you by the Google Assistant. The Google Assistant is ready to help you get more done with just your voice in the car, at home, and everywhere you take your phone. The Assistant is really helpful when we're on the road. I can just say, hey, Google, where's the nearest dry cleaner? Little help, hands-free. Just say, hey, Google, to get started. Welcome to the seventh episode of The Road Taken with CT and Bayo, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Bayo. And I'm CT. And we're recording this on November 9th in Manchester, England. We've played our first two shows of our fall European tour. CT, how you feeling? Feeling good. I think we're both having a little bit of uh, the common thing of a little jet lag, getting back on on Manchester time, on UK time. Musicians get jet lag, eh? <laughs> oh, ain't that the truth. <laughs> I was actually thinking this morning while I was ha- not sleeping at about uh, 5.45 a.m. Yeah, yeah. that I was thinking about the first ever UK tour we mm-hmm. did. And we also landed in Manchester. Oh, right. It was our first show. Yeah, yeah. And we're staying in a different hotel uh-huh. 12 years later. But it is... It, I'm staying seven to a room here true. this time. Like we used to stay four to a room. Was there... There was like a bed with like or there was a room with eight beds. Or yeah, that was insane. Was, the, something Blue Diamond Lodge? Blue Diamond Lodge, Blue I Diamond believe. Lodge. So if you're in the market for an eight-bed hotel room... We should have recorded this in the lobby of the Blue <laughs> Diamond Lodge. We should have more conceptual. Um, but there was... I was taking pleasure, actually, in the fact that, as I tend to do, 12 years later, much different circumstances, but still having the same damn problems. Absolutely. Yeah, there is something comforting in that. Uh, have you found the show so far? Really good. We haven't done headline club shows in such a long time in six years Mm -hmm. in Europe. Uh, You know, we did a few this summer, but that was mainly festivals. So I I think it feels exciting and fun and fresh to be doing the full FOTB show that we can do that we've been doing in Mm -hmm. the States, especially over here. And and I think it's fun. I, I had a lost my stick. Last night in the middle of a tasty jam. I think you saw it. I I saw you chuckle. I got a little laughing. Um, I think it only cost yeah, me like, like a beat yeah. and a half, two beats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I got back on there, but it was uh, it was a little disconcerting, but we got right back on there. That is, yeah, I guess. And I feel like we very recently discussed you dropping a drumstick. So I think so far the theme of this intro is new tour, same old bullshit. You know what? We didn't, we didn't plan it. <laughs> but as we're, we're getting better at this, you know, we're, we're really on task. Yeah, definitely. Do you have anything planned uh, for your time in Manchester? Anything you're going to get up to? Well, I just got word. That we are not sound checking today. Cute. Breaking. Breaking. Um, which is not common, actually, because I think even though we have, you know, a lot of very professional people 
whose job it is to make it sound the same and sort of have us have the same experience on stage so we can concentrate and do our thing. We tend to sound check every day, even sometimes yeah. maybe getting a little rehearsal in. Practice is good. If we're going to do something that we haven't done in a while or have never done, mm-hmm. which we've been doing a lot of. But this breaking news, this is this is news to me that we, we're not sound checking. So I'm thinking I might take a train up to Burnley to catch okay. the Burnley West Ham. I believe it's Burnley West Ham Premier League match. What time's kickoff? 3 p.m. Oh, okay. I'll get there. It'll be like a quick trip, certainly, into the heart yeah. of British suburbia. And tomorrow we have a day off and I'm... I'm confirmed to see Liverpool Man City, which I'm very excited about. Yeah, you tend to do a lot of sports tourism. Fall Europe is yeah. is a real hotbed because I love, uh, I don't know how international our listenership is. I know this is a bit of a controversial thing. Mm-hmm. I grew up with the term soccer. Yeah, yeah. I feel like the Ringer Podcast Network probably is, calls it soccer. Mm-hmm. Being here, I, my impulse is to call it football. Yeah. Um, but yes, I, I, I love going to football matches, soccer matches. And in the UK in the fall, there are tons of them. Yeah. I, uh, after we record this, I'm going to meet some friends in town. Apparently, there's a delightful... <laughs> See, that's the difference between you and me. Yeah, yeah. You've got friends. I've got friends. <laughs> but there's apparently a delightful German-style Christmas market oh. in Manchester. And even though it's only November 9th, when you're in a country where there's no Thanksgiving, Christmas fever comes early. Well, and also, this is our... Especially because we, we live in Los Angeles, that we're getting that real taste of the crisp fall weather. Well, I got, I, if you made it to the end of the last episode, <laughs> I got my peacoat in Edinburgh and I love walking around in it. I just feel confident, like I'm dressed in a seasonally appropriate way. It's really done wonders for me I mean, in the does, past you, two days. You do look like pretty sailorish. Yeah. It's I haven't great. seen you. Do you, have a, do you have a hat, like a winter hat? I haven't seen that uh, in the mix or not really. You know, my really a hat lovely, guy. no, I'm not. My wife's grandmother knit me a beautiful one, oh. but I haven't taken it out yet. But uh, maybe well, you'll see compl- that later. That'll complete the look as we that'll get deeper. That'll be a little bit later. Especially if we get to colder climbs like Cologne, which I think is a good transition. That is a killer, killer transition. Who is our guest? Um, you know what? I normally do this part, but I think okay. I think you should do it today because... As we set out to figure out who we could talk to for this debut season of The Road Taken, you know, we had a lot of peers and friends, but I think we also wanted to widen the perspective. And Mm -hmm. so we thought of trying to get in touch and seeing if people that we really looked up to and influenced us um, in many ways. And the person we're talking to today is your influence, your hero. And who is that? It's true. Yeah. Um, When I was 19 years old and started doing college radio and started really like expanding my horizons of the music I could listen to, one band I discovered that it's not an overstatement to say changed my life would be the band Can. And it's also not an overstatement to say that they changed the course of music history. I think they showed what a band could be and were so, so influential. Um, They've been covered by Radiohead, sampled by Kanye. And even if you haven't heard their music, you felt their influence. And um, they were formed in 1968 in Cologne, where we're going to be in a couple of weeks. And, uh, Germany, we should say. In Cologne, Germany. Germany. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In, in Germany. And um, they've been this mythologized band, and their story has been told many times. Um, but their first singer is someone who's been a sort of really mysterious figure, a guy by the name of Malcolm Mooney. And I decided, I guess maybe it was in March or April of mm-hmm. this year to see if I could track him down. I was reading a book called All Gates Open, which was a history of Can, and learned that Malcolm grew up not too far away from where I grew up in Westchester, New York. And uh, I was very struck by that because, yeah, the, the music seems so far removed from where I grew up when I first discovered it. And I don't know, he's someone who... T- 
to my knowledge, he's never done a long-form interview about his life, his career, his time with Cannes. Certainly not in the last, like, 20 years. And his story is one that's been told many, many times by other people, but never, like, directly right, kind of through other him. perspectives, kind of. Yeah, so it was, it was interesting. I, I sent him an email just out of the blue telling him that he was super influential to me and changed my life. And then he got in touch. He wrote me back a couple of days later. And, you know, within a week, I was talking on the phone with one of my musical idols. Uh, very, very sweet man. He invited us to interview him in his home in uh, Calgary, Canada. And we did this interview in May, like right around the time FOTB was coming out. And there was a nasty case of the flu ripping its way through our band. And I kind of came down with it while we were in Calgary the night before we were going to as interview Malcolm. As I was Malcolm, over it. As yeah. you were getting over it. And I was super, super anxious about being welcomed into one of my musical heroes' homes and making him sick. So one thing I will say is if you're ill, really make sure you wash your hands. I washed my hands so many times before we went into Malcolm's house. That would be uh, one teachable lesson I would say from from this interview but yeah I don't know it just um he was super gracious his story is absolutely fascinating it's um kind of unlike any other in music history but at the same time there are things you can relate to like classic stories of being sort of exploited or taken advantage of he was very open about everything and uh yeah I don't know it's it's a long interview but well worth your time and and rewarding uh and that's kind of what I have to say about it you got anything else you want to say yeah I think can holds a, a similar place, if slightly less deep, I think, in, in my experience. I remember getting, when I heard about them and sort of researching, and this weirdly sounds ancient at this point, but finding the physical CDs mm-hmm. uh, and, at Princeton Record Exchange and being really excited and, and sort of the, the covers being ethereal, their whole mythology, sort of very few pictures of the people involved and the changing lineups and everything. And, and Malcolm, of course, being in the initial thrust and kind of the formation of the idea, I think, of what can can be, even if he was only part of that initial thrust for a very short window, as he as he speaks to. Um, yeah, I mean, this was particularly in, in in relation to the road taken. I think this was an awesome thing because this was early on in the process as we were kind of figuring out what this could or should be, and we had people that we knew, you know, the peers that we've that we've talked to for the most part. But I think honestly, his his response to your email was yeah. was very exciting and, and kind of like almost made it seem like, oh, this is possible. We could widen who we talk to and we can, the perspectives that we can include and can be from people who maybe we have less in common with yeah. and maybe have, you know, have experience in decades, obviously that we, <laughs> we know nothing about touring in the sixties or Absolutely. playing, doing a live soundtrack to uh, you know, an artistically done play in Switzerland in 1969. You know, we, yeah. we, we have very little experience yeah, with yeah. that. <laughs> um, so yeah. And, and, you know, the whole, the whole thing of, Honestly, I kind of thought like the traveling for it made it more special in a way of of sort of really putting a lot of like the time spent and getting there made the conversation yeah. that much cooler to me. Yeah, getting on a plane and talking to an incredible person. Well, I think we've talked about this conversation enough. Time to hear it. This is Mr. Malcolm Mooney. So I just wanted to start by saying thank you, Malcolm, so much for sitting with us and talking with us today, it um, it really means the world to me. And I guess where I wanted to start is that, you know, I fell in love with your work on Monster Movie when I would have been 19 years old, right? When I left Westchester, where I grew up and lived in the city for the first time. And it kind of 
expanded my horizon as to like what music could be and what a record could be. And for me, there was something about it that seemed so like alien and so kind of far removed from what I at the time considered to be maybe a boring or average upbringing in Westchester. Now, flash forward to a couple months ago, I was reading the book All Gates Open, and I learned that you too are also from Westchester, and it really blew my mind. And it's something, you know, like my upbringing, I can definitely appreciate it a lot more now. Um, but I just, I guess I want to start by asking you about your memories of Westchester and growing up there and that kind of stuff. How'd you get there? Uh, stork? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, um, I was born in Yonkers, uh, the city of gracious living, as somebody said once. And um, I went to school in Yonkers originally, you know, I went to public school in Yonkers. And um, the, the, I guess the interesting thing for me about Yonkers was I, I was a church kid. I went every Sunday. I used to um, be in the choir, a junior choir, and I, I just started singing. I don't know why I started singing in the choir. I just, it might have been because of the Was girl. it something your family was doing or was anyone no, else in the choir? No, my, but my dad played piano. And I don't know why I decided to be in the choir. I really don't. Maybe because a lot of us just joined the choir. I mean, you, you go to church, what are you going to do? Um, sit in the pew? Oh, no, I didn't want to do that. So there's an opening to be in the choir. I'll try the choir. I said, well, maybe I'll play a clarinet. So at the same time that I was going to play the clarinet, my dad brought home Arnett Coleman's Change of the Century, which really changed my mind because I, I, I've said this to other people before. The idea of this music versus what I was listening to earlier, uh, Why Do Fools Fall in Love by uh, Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers, or um, I was just telling my wife the other day about uh, there's a, an album called The Paragons Meet the Jesters, and there's a song called The Wind, and there's a song called Florence, and these is a facetto that'll knock you dead. Unbelievable. Such, you know, and this is one of those music, one of those things where one of those basement well, at the time, they didn't have black light, but basement red light music in the base. Beautiful sound. So that's one of the things about Yonkers in the church frame. But I don't know if you know a place called Tibbetts Brook Park. No, no. That's in Yonkers? Yeah, Tibbetts Brook Park is a big, huge swimming pool in Yonkers. Outdoor, outdoor swimming pool. So these are things that happened to me in Yonkers. I, was, I used to ride my bike over to the swimming pool. And then one day I took the wrong turn and I went into a neighborhood that apparently was not for me, not kosher. This is Yonkers too. This is, this is 1950s, 50, yeah, 50. Yeah. And, and I was called everything but the house of rent, you know? I mean, I was, it, was, it was hard, but I actually liked Yonkers a great deal. Back to music, I decided to play the clarinet and... My dad, well, you mentioned the Ornette Coleman album as sort of a watershed. That's right. And Ornette Coleman's, um, I was supposed to be in the commencement performance for our sixth grade class. I was in the orchestra or band. And so I was, um, <laughs> I thought I was Ornette Coleman. Or could, trying to bring yeah. the, the principals into the, yeah. yeah. So I decided that the band leader's telling us what we were supposed to be playing, but I went off somewhere else on the, at the, on a, thought I had a solo. I didn't have a solo. Thought I, and I just started playing. And at, this is in commencement, and, and I got uh, shut down. The director said, uh, Malcolm, 
Let's not be quiet. You know? <laughs> so that was my last, my last clarinet playing. That was the end of my clarinet career. Years later, I, when I was uh, in Boston, I played saxophone. I had one uh, teacher, a guy named Charles Davis. And this is when this is when you went to college, right? Yeah, when Boston, you went to BU. Yeah. So you you went from Westchester. The way you left Westchester was by going to BU. Right, and I and I left Westchester. Well, I got accepted at Boston University through Hackley. Okay. I'll go. Um, yeah, let's do Hackley. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, Hackley is a prep school in Tarrytown, New York. Okay. And um, I was accepted there basically because of sports. I would play tennis with kids who went to Hackley. Yeah, growing up. Yeah, and is then I, right? I um, from Bronx playing Bronx. Just, yeah, like like in in a place nearby, and then. I guess Terrytown. I told you this when we talked on the phone a couple of weeks ago. That was where I did my first ever recordings right. at a, a guy named Mike D'Amico's studio. That was called okay. Chunky Studios in his house in Terrytown. So those are my Hackley Terrytown. I can't remember what street it was on. What was the now. song? What was the music? It was very much like pop punk, okay. like uh, music, like angsty 16 year old. It's okay. not not my best work, I think, ultimately. Not, are you but, familiar with pop punk? Just, no, no. <laughs> but, but it sounds it sounds like it might be your. Uh, um, slower on the on the burner to me. I don't know. I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm, but I like to hear something. I like I'll to, play you some no, of my please, early please, stuff. Please, yeah, nice. yeah. I trust you enough. Yeah, yeah to what, share. What that. about you, Chris? Are you, are you were you playing at the time? I I played growing up for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I I'm from New Jersey, so oh, Jersey, still tri-state yeah. area, but yeah, one of the Jerseyites. <laughs> um, at that, the sort of pre-collegiate time for me would have been is more of a. Um, what I think of fondly, but some people use this derogatorily as a jam band. Okay, okay. Sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Fish, P-H-I-S-H yeah, being yeah, sort yeah, of the... Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. So, but you, okay, he doesn't know pop punk, but you know yeah, Fish. Fish. Yeah, yeah. Nice, nice. Okay. So, um, but yeah, so, so we, I mean, we both sort of grew up somewhat similarly of playing in bands and without ever any necessarily huge, I guess, dreams. Yeah. yeah and yeah. certainly a lot of yeah, care yeah. put into them, right. but not nece- not professional aspirations okay. i guess yeah i yeah. think that might be a, a good sign that you didn't have uh that kind of a uh forward like the dream idea that you're going to do this you're going to be a big uh, i mean i didn't think i was going to be a musician until yeah. i looked back and like oh yeah, I'm right. a musician I'm a musician, I guess. musician yes. so what fred brown just said about you get a, you get a, you have a paintbrush and you paint something then they call you an artist you know <laughs> you have a horn or drums or then they call you a drummer or you know, yeah well i think it's a plus I've always felt this was true for me, and I'm just curious if, if maybe mm. this might ring true for you, is that I always thought that when, particularly when you're improvising in a musical sense, your mind's almost blank and you're kind of, you're in the moment, you're reacting, you're thinking, you're kind of doing all these things at once, that I've always found that the best of those times musically for me is a very similar feeling to when I was perform- like playing the best, say, like at soccer or something. Mm-hmm. Okay. When you're you're taking all these inputs and you're you're not really thinking, but you're just kind of, you're, you're reacting and you've had enough training to make the right impulsive decisions. Or, does so that, does that sound familiar to you at all? So is there like a sports music connection in that way? Well, in terms of sports, I think sports and rhythm are key. There's a connection with that. You know, it might be, it might be just um, um, built in for someone, you know, you play sports, you have to get instead of a certain kind of a framework to deal with what you're going to do on the field or playing basketball or in music, usually there's other people with you playing. It's a group effort. 
It becomes a group effort, which I've discovered now is also in painting. It can become a group effort. But earlier, it didn't seem to be a group. Painting didn't seem to be a group effort. But I think the idea of having mates to play with, there's a listening factor. There is a a fact of trying to, uh, listening is key for me. And listening to a pulse, which is also, also your heart is telling you how to make this particular move, I think. I think your your heart starts to race. Uh, you can make your heart race, but also when you make your heart race, it's going to, the tempo, that tempo change comes about. And I think that's a very important method or a very important, it might be instinct, that relates to sports plus music. For our listeners, how do you get from Boston to Cologne? Okay, so I am... Uh, I'm playing in Boston. I took saxophone lessons with a guy by the name of um, Charles Davis. And Charles Davis came to my studio. He would come to my studio. I had a studio over in um, over on Tremont Street. So Charles said, okay, we're going to go over to the Big M. This is after a couple of times we rehearsed. We go to the Big M. I'm not sure they rehearsed. A couple of times he gave me some scales to play. And so we go to the Big M, which is on um, Mass Avenue. And we go in there. It's a bar. And there's a stage, we go in there, and uh, Charles is accomplished. He used to play with Johnny Diani and all these other people out of Europe. And so we start, I don't know if I'm playing really, but he's playing. I have my saxophone, and I'm doing some tooting or whatever the hell I'm doing. And so um, we play, and there's a bunch of guys at the bar, like sitting at the bar, and they're listening, nodding. And then we leave, we go back to my studio, and uh, Charles' remark to me is, um, these paintings are really very good, Malcolm. And that was the end of the conversation. <laughs> At that point, I realized I was not playing saxophone. So I said, I said I'll, I'll, I'll give this up for the time being. But uh, I took the saxophone with me to Europe. And um, the reason I went to Europe is actually the war. That's why I went to Europe. Vietnam at the time. Yeah. And uh, it's not that I don't appreciate the men who serve. I mean, God bless them, you know. Um, it just wasn't what I wanted to do. I didn't, uh, um, can I serve my country a different way than that, you know? So I, I uh, my friend, um, a young man by the name of Joshua Zim, uh, well, he wanted to go to um, India. And uh, I said, well, why not? <laughs> I'm game, you know? So um, I went to the, well, I went to Whitehall to get, uh, goes with the, about the draft. And then I, I left, and I, I forget the date I left. I, I, it was just after the um, student riots in Paris, like April, I think we left on like April 28th or April 18th, something like that. We flew to Luxembourg, and we hitchhiked from uh, Luxembourg into Paris. Well, Serge Cherapin, who invented the Serge synthesizer, uh, I can't pronounce it right, he was on our go-to list, so we went to visit him, and uh, he invited us to stay at his place in uh, in Paris, in Saint-Germain, in Alpha Saint-Germain. And so we stayed there, and then um, I had my saxophone with me, of course. So, so one day I started. I'm playing. I'm playing the saxophone up. We're in, in his apartment, and there's a knock on the door, and the gendarme says, to us, "No, no, you can't be making too much noise." <laughs> But then Serge got us a gig at um, a place near the opera. It's a little, it was like a little club. 
And so Joshua played piano and I played saxophone. I think there were some dancers. And um, that was like, well, yeah, well, people, people clapped and said, okay. So I said, well, maybe, you know, I was known at the time as being a, a painter, but, I, you know, uh, so I thought it was great. I played the saxophone. So we, we were heading to India. So we took off and hitchhiked out of Paris, heading south out of Paris. I'm trying to remember if we took a train somewhere. But we wound up in Orange. And uh, in Orange, we met a guy, and I, this is, I thought it was kind of funny. His name was Joe Paluca. <laughs> and, and he was a bit sounds like a real Yonkers guy. Yeah, Joe Paluka, yeah, a lot of Yonkers. <laughs> and Joe Paluka must have been from I don't know from Gabon or from some African country. Big, big, big guy. And he said, uh, well, "What do you guys want to do?" And I said, "Well, you know, we have to make some money." He says, "Well, come on." And he, he said, "You play saxophone?" Yeah, yeah, I play the saxophone. So he took us to this club. It's like a little coffee shop. A lot of people sitting around there. And uh, it was it was more like jo- nobody would refuse Joe Paluka with a hat. You know, it's like, if this guy's so huge and he has a hat in his hand, he wants some money, you better give it to him. <laughs> so we, we started playing, playing. Joshua was playing the piano. I'm playing saxophone. And um, we got paid. So we stayed at his house, at Joe's house. And the next morning, we got on the road again. Zim and I go from Perman Terror we get a train, had my bag of my saxophone, some clothes, and those plates, and a harmonica. And we go get a train to Salzburg. And from Salzburg, we get a train to Istanbul. And we travel to Istanbul. And, oh, I should have remembered. Richard Martin, I mentioned before, Richard Martin had introduced me to world music to new music from well, not world music from all over the world which it was so i heard um i started listening to the gagaku i started listening to iranian these um this music done by the iranian wrestlers which they use these they use these um what do you call stick clubs they're like um you know those guys that juggle um but they're like these pins huh. these big pins they make the, and they make they make this music with these pin with these I think they're singing actually with these pins. They have those things. He introduced me to all this music from Brazil and from uh, uh, Africa, the pygmies, the pygmy. So all of a sudden, this is back in Boston. So I'm listening to all this music. All, and also, I had never heard of uh, Jimi Hendrix right. at the time. And uh, another musician by the name of Lowell Davison, who was a piano player and he was a chemist actually also. Lowell Davison introduced me to Jimi Hendrix. And I said, Jesus, Christmas, man, who the hell is this guy? So we're, we are... Where, where are You're in Istanbul. Istanbul. Yeah. Istanbul. Yeah. And we're in a, a hostel, a motel, and um, a pension. And so um, I'm listening. I hear this music. I said, what the hell is that music? Jesus. And you know those, um, those cartoons where you see the, like, the smell of the aroma of food and somebody starts floating? It's, drawn towards it. Drawn, Yeah. And I hear this music. We got to find out where this music is coming from. So behind Top Copy, there's a big field. And in this big field, there are these guys dressed in these black leather pants. Bunch of guys. out. And there's a little guy running around with an oil can, oiling these guys. Oiling all these. And it's like, it is WrestleMania. 
It is actually the <gasps> most unbelievable scene Whoa. I've ever. So they, it's a wrestle off. I couldn't really get the, you know, I'm there. But the thing that got to me was the fact that there's a guy with a shanai, a harmonium, a, a, you know, a, a, what do you call it? It's a harmonium and a drum. And they're playing all this time while these guys are wrestling. I said, man, this is fantastic. So they wrestling. And then all of a sudden, it's, it's like the sea part. And all of a sudden, you hear this, this big roar. come, baby. And then all this guy, this big brown-skinned guy comes walking down. And I, I guess I said, like, who the hell, who, who's that guy there? He said, that's the world champ. I said, where's he from? He said, he's from Gabon. I said, what? So you're talking about a learning experience. All of a sudden, we have left the continent of Europe. Yeah. And we're in a place where you can't even, I can't, I don't know Farsi. I have no idea what's written on the wall. I have no idea. Although it's a beautiful script and everything. Wait, oh, so this is in Iran now? No, this is, no, this is oh, it's still in Istanbul. Okay, okay. So, but, but, but I'm talking about, the, I'm talking yeah, about yeah. The, the lettering. So you can't, you don't know if that place sells cigarettes or sells beverage. You can't, you don't have any idea what this, all you know is there's a, if you go in there, you'll find out, but you can't yeah. find it. So I'm there and I'm, I'm saying, wow, man, this guy who's considered the world champion is from Gabon, from Africa. There's a bunch of guys r- running around here and, and with these leather pants on. In fact, there's a couple of record albums that have the, which has the cover of these guys on it with these leather pants on, you know, these black. I said, all of a sudden, the world starts to change for me. At one point, I'm in Europe. And the next point, I'm in some place that's not Europe. They are speaking another language that I cannot understand at all. And they're doing something. That, and I think Malcolm X said something about why he changed his approach. Because when he went to Mecca, there were all these different peoples in Mecca, you know. And, all, and, and I think the big the key factor for me there was that they considered this, this guy the world champion. And it's not like baseball when I was a kid. Everybody was from America. So this idea of World Series became much more effective here than it did to me in the, in the in the states you know and the music factor the fact that the music was a music i had not heard before i don't know how you guys what you guys that were brought up on music you heard when you were younger but i would imagine that you must have heard of, like this piece that you did of sun sunflower yeah, yeah that piece has the breaks in it that are sort of not traditional stuff. It's a very, um, the beat suggests someplace else other than the American tradition, yeah. which I think is quite nice. I think that, I shouldn't use quite nice, as my mother used to say about my painting something. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> I, said, I said, Mom, come on, I've been down here two hours <laughs> with one stroke and come on. Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. So it, it, this trip obviously expanded your horizons over the course of, we've gone like a month now and all of a sudden it, you're seeing the world champion yeah. wrestler playing crazy music in, in Turkey. Like it's uh It becomes a new horizon, you know? Yeah. Which... When I, if I was to bounce forward, it would be, well, why can't I do this music the way this is being done? You know what? The structure of music no longer the... The over- rules you yeah, thought yeah, existed the, the don't exist. The rules for the sixth fest or yeah, whatever. Yeah. All, of a sudden, all of a sudden it changed. All of a sudden the, the rules had changed, you know? Yeah. I mean, the Gaga coup for me, in fact, they even canned as on the EFS, when the EFS pieces, they're doing a Gaga, you know, so you... So you go through that. To me, that to me that makes more sense 
at that time, and even now, then, well, even opera sounds good to me sometimes. The voice, the, the idea of the voice being able to portray something other than, well, I even like Tennessee Ernie Ford, 16, yeah, yeah. 16 tons of what I get. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? But it, it, the, the voice becomes an important factor. And I think that's what where Can was trying to go in a way with, with uh, my voice. Yeah, so you get to, after this insane trip that expanded your horizons, you arrive in Cologne. Well, yeah, a long way. We go, we yeah, because you go, you went to India, uh, yeah, Indiana, but, yeah, Iran. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, so in uh, Paris, me, I met Hildegard Schmidt in Paris, and then uh, because my friend Joshua wanted, Joshua decides to go to Elba because his girlfriend just married his best friend, so he's going to go exile himself to be with uh, Napoleon. Napoleon, yeah, yeah, yeah. So. I was sad, but I, I got on a train. We went to the market that night. All of us went to the March Surge. There's a, um, um, a composer by the name of Emmanuel Nunes. Emmanuel Nunes had written a composition for 800 million Chinese to sing at the same time so that the Earth's axis would change. Yeah. That was his idea. So, <laughs> so I, he was there for dinner. We had suckling pig. And about 17 bottles of wine. <laughs> and the next morning, I got on a train and went to Cologne. And uh, I arrived in Cologne. I forget. Was that Hildegard's idea when you met her? Or? She said, come to... Well, see, I, it was a, mis- it was a, a mistake uh, in my... She did say, come to Cologne. But I thought she was telling me to come to Cologne because they had a studio, an art studio. Not a... Uh, recording not studio. A recording studio. So you, you went to Cologne thinking for painting. That's right. I did not know that. That's amazing. So. I I arrive in Cologne, and uh, the impetus, I guess, with this is also Serge Cherubin, who was a friend of both Ehrman and Hildegard. So I arrive in Cologne, and I remember I was at the Bahnhof, and I, I remember uh, I had no idea where and how to get to uh, to their house. I think I had a phone number. I knew they lived in Bucklerman. So, so I get to Bucklerman, and while I'm at, and I get into the, it's a complex, and I said, geez, man, I feel like I'm in Long Island. <laughs> I swear to God, I swear, it's like it was a um, housing complex, right? And so I'm walking around, I have no idea where they live. I have no, I'm just, but I know it's in Bucklerman. Yeah. And I'm walking around, and there's a big green area. And, uh, you know, and I see this woman with a dog. And I said, I, I, uh, excuse me. She spoke English. I said, maybe she didn't. She might not have spoken English. I just said, excuse me. Do you know Ehrman and Hildegard Schmidt? And she said, that's my brother. Whoa. It was, her name is Siglinda Schmidt. And, and that was, Ehrman was her brother. And I said, I don't believe. So she took me. Uh, and just for our listeners, Ehrman's a keyboard player keyboard, for, yeah, for Ken. Ken. Yeah, yeah. So she took me to the house, to the apartment. And um, now that I'm saying this, it almost feels like maybe she wasn't Ehrman's sister. Maybe she just said, we'll take you over here and you'll meet these people, you know, <laughs> some other strange, another strange movie. Anyway, so I go over there, I get to the house and Ehrman, and I'm trying to, I think, uh, I think Ehrman and Mickey are there. And so we're, uh, you know, oh, well, what do you do? You're, and the question came up at some point, can I sing? 
And uh, I'm not going to say to them, well, where's the art studio? Because I have no money anyway. So I'm saying to myself, well, yeah, I used to say, you know, sing, you know, sure, why not? So then they said, well, you can, uh, Herman Hill said, well, you can stay here. So I stayed with them. We're sitting around with uh, Ermin and uh, Mickey, and the fact that uh, the idea— and Mickey is Michael Caroli, uh, yeah. uh, guitarist for Cone. And, and the thing about it was, this is uh, the reason I'm in Cologne is because I'm thinking that this is an art. I'm going there to be and do some artwork, right? So they said, okay, first of all, the Hendrix show is going to come up in a couple of weeks in, mm-hmm. in Cologne, the Schwarzhaller. Ermin and I say, well, let's get some tickets for the, the Hendrix show. And we're sitting way up in the back. And had you guys, had you been doing recordings with them? Like the, that point? the delay 1968? Or, or, even, or even just any sort of playing with them, recording or not? I, I don't, see, I, okay, to be honest, I do not know the time frame between the time, because... We had gone to the studio prior to Hendrix. Mm-hmm. At this time, David Johnson is there. He was part of Can, yeah, yeah, part of Inner Space with that time. Mm-hmm. So we're doing some recording, and I'm trying to remember. I don't think I do not think at that time we had done Father Can I Yell Outside My Door or anything like that. At that point. I think we were just doing we we were just there uh, in the studio, and I decided maybe I can do this. You know? Yeah, and. Um, then we went to see the Hendrix show. Yeah, I looked up the date of it. It was uh, January 13th. That's the date of the of Hendrix 69. show? Yeah, at Sports Halla in Cologne. Then we had done something prior to that. We had made, recorded some stuff in 68. It was like Train Thief. Whistle. I oh, think yeah. Train Whistle. No, Thief okay. is very late. Thief oh, is really? A, a thief is done in 16, end of 69. Okay. Um so yeah, I guess what are what are your memories of the like kind of earliest recordings or like those early moments, those improvisations and things like that when you first started playing when you hadn't been a singer before? I mean, I didn't, I had no idea that you hadn't like you got to Cologne not expecting to be fronting a band. So no, that wasn't my idea. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, well, so what are your memories of those those early like rehearsals or early performances? Well, the perform well um, rehearsals, I didn't even consider them rehearsals. I'd consider them more jams than anything else, you know. It was a daily ritual. I mean, I remember playing every single day. We would get up. I was saying, this time I'm living with Ermin. I'm living with Ermin and Hildegard, and Jackie, Holger, and Mickey. So Jackie's Ken's drummer. Ken's Holger's drummer, the bass, bass player. Yeah. They they would all we'd all meet at Ermin's house, Ermin Hildegard's house, and have breakfast, Frühstück. And we would sit around and talk. Not I wouldn't talk so much because I didn't know German. Well, Mickey spoke a lot of, a lot of English. But basically, it was a conversation at the breakfast table were not a, that I know of. We're not about music at all. We just sat around and talked. And then all of a sudden, we'd say, I think we'd be um, in Ehrman's house from about 10 o'clock to about 12 o'clock. And then we'd take off and go to Norwich to the studio. And we'd be in the studio from like 12 o'clock at noon until 12 midnight. We'd do that every day, every single day. And um, I remember in 69 was the first time, well, there's a, there's a big break. Oh, shit. <laughs> Did you say Scheisse just there? Because you're 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 back in Germany and this. Uh... <laughs> the only thing I ever learned. 
<laughs> but so um, yeah, we go to the studio, and um, it's kind of interesting because that's the same the same castle is where Ulrich Rukrim lived. He lived on the second floor. Okay, so I think Father cannot yell outside my door, um, Mary, and um, you do right, which is on the first album, I believe. Yeah, and I think if I remember. Um, outside my door was this AB, ABC structure, I think it was. And what happened was it was not stated what I was supposed to do except sing something, right? But Ehrman wrote out this uh, linear A, B, A, B, C structure, which I could linearly, I could follow that. So I said, um, yeah, okay, let's make up some lyrics. And the lyrics were actually spontaneous. It was not, uh, in fact, the writing came after the fact that I did the lyrics. For almost all of, or as you're saying, all of the canned stuff that you know, people love so much was, was essentially maybe talking about structural stuff a little bit, but it was kind of you and the, the other four members of can just kind of letting it rip. Yeah. Well, see, this is, the, this is the thing about, um, in terms of not understanding German, right. There is the fact that the music is being, uh, the jam is happening. And then there's the fact that this is going to go to Stockhausen studio. Or to some second, the second stage because we're we're recording on Raybox two-track Raybox machines. So technically, Holger is a, was the one of the mastering people at the time, I believe. And I think there's there's some, some um, things that I did not know, like in the Can book. There's this talk about going to to uh, Stockhausen's the uh, West Deutsche Rundfunk studio. So I would. So what happens is because I I'd never heard. Well, I'm there. I never heard the finished product huh. of any of this until I am back in New York. Whoa. Okay, that's amazing. That, this is, this so you never had any, even with your own sort of sense of feedback, you never listened to something other than maybe in the day and took stock. Yeah, I, I don't remember. I remember the actual feeling and the progression of the music as we did it. But I don't remember hearing, it might be that I just don't remember, but I don't remember hearing final, final, final play. masters. Yeah. 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 And it, when you mentioned Thief before, yeah. She Brings the Rain and Thief, probably one of my favorites, ballad wise. I mean, the, the Thief. Both incredible. Thief, yeah. Thief, yeah. Thief's a, an emotional one for me, which I really like. And it's, it's, it's a, it has a, it has, to me, it has that, um, um, uh, power like a religious a religious thought. So I think basically because it reflects some of my Christian background, I guess maybe, and um, put in a different put put in a, to a musical uh, like I am the thief, and I've changed it. Some sometimes I've changed that last uh, part of it. They are the thieves, but um, then I remember is it REM? Who did uh, who does Losing my religion? No, no the. Um, uh, who ta- who does a, does this uh, live? Uh, oh, uh, Radiohead. 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 Yeah, Radiohead does this live, 
yeah. who got credit for it actually too for a while. And uh, Radiohead got credit for it before they said, and I forget when it was, they said that it was Can's music. But um, that song to me was an, an important one. Not that Outside My Door, because Outside My Door is actually basically, I don't know if I should wait for you to read the book or just tell you, but I, yeah, outside, I, lived, I lived with Jackie Liebitzite. Jackie Liebitzite lived at the, near, right around the corner from the Bonhoeff, the Cologne Bonhoeff, which is the train station. And that's where that idea, I can hear the train whistle comes from, oh. because we're right there at the trains. And then um, that little section of Jackie, where Jackie says, um, Five colors of the, I think it's five colors of the, uh, the five colors make the ear blind. That's what it was. I think it was. And to jump, jump, to jump around on that one, then there's a can, the Chevy commercial. The Chevy commercial, which came out in December of this year, which has Mary as the soundtrack. Really? Oh, I yeah. didn't know that. Oh, nice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's pretty cool. But, well, the problem is, well, not the problem, but, but it doesn't use, it does not use, Vocal. It just uses oh, the just uses instrumental. But in the middle of the commercial, a guy gets out of the truck and he says, <laughs> "I don't know if that's good or bad," which is from outside my door. Uh, <laughs> and I went to I went to uh, I got a call from a friend of mine in uh, Detroit. I didn't know about the, I didn't know about this can piece. I didn't know there was a, a commercial. And that's a it becomes. Uh, when you guys, um, hope your management is good, and I hope uh, the business part of your lives are good because I don't, I don't know what happens between no. a person that's in Europe and a person in Canada or America, because I don't get the information until later on. So I find out stuff. <laughs> I find out stuff like my friend in Detroit right, sends me an email. Says, "Mal, did you hear the this commercial with the with Mary in it?" I said, "No." So I said. Let me call can management, and I, I wait two or three days before I call can management, thinking that maybe no anything, maybe anything. I just said I'm gonna call. So I call him up on the phone, and then, and then there's a lot of this, a lot of this. Uh, what do you call it? Um, mumbo jumbo. I'll use a lot of this <laughs> that tells me that's supposed to tell me. Oh, you know Malcolm. You know when when once they, when somebody starts up with oh you know Malcolm, I know there's a problem with the, <laughs> the communication system. So. So anyway, so there's, so there's this um, interesting uh, commercial, good commercial, and recognizable uh, Ma uh, Marys in there, you know. So before I went to that sidetrack, what was I? <laughs> I love that sidetrack, though. Just, That's so fascinating. But, but, what? Yeah. What? You have to, yeah. What do you feel when you watch that commercial? Uh, I'm always interested in. On, um, I ask myself all the time about when I'm dealing with my with because it's not my management. Mm -hmm. Can management is can management, and uh, yeah. I just wonder why, because I don't get informed about any 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 of those kinds of information. Uh, Lisbon story by Vim um, Vendors, two tracks are in there. Uh, I think um, she brings rain and, and Mary, and two two tracks that I'm singing on are in there. And when I found out, I said to can management, I said, "Well, what what did we get for that?" And uh, uh, management said. We gave those pieces to them so that they would give us another deal on a different on another on another uh, album, yeah. another another and some other movie. Yeah. Another movie. Yeah. All well and good, but where does the other movie or what you know? So I'm kept out of the loop in terms of in terms of management. So that's why. Ideally, you would 
if money does come in, it's still some of it comes to you, though, no? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, although over the years, the money does come to me. But over the years, what I originally see, I don't know anything. I didn't know anything about the business. Yeah. So a good friend of mine who who was the um, the, the manager of the Fat Boys um, said, Malcolm, you know, there's the rap a, group, the Fat Boys. Yeah. She's okay. A, she's a, she's, nice. a, she's, a, she's an old friend of mine. She said, you know, Malcolm, the uh, there's two shares there. There's a there's the uh, um, lyric share, and then there's the uh, instrumental compositional share. And uh, you're supposed to get a lyric share. But when I signed with Can, I did not know anything about lyric share or anything. So I just and so just like it says the well, I don't know if it says the Rolling Stones. I think a lot of the stuff says. Who wrote the Beatles? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know this that that that, that was the key a key factor. So um, I signed signed off on can, it says can music and lyrics by can all the, everything except for the right time album and the right time the original right time album it was um, music by can lyrics by Malcolm Mooney. I don't know if it says that, it, but it, it separates. Um, yeah. In that now, on the, but then they re, they redid the album, and the second time around, it doesn't state that. It states music and lyrics by Can. These kind of things cause me on there's the music side, and then there's that business side. That's, yeah, that's there for tremendously everyone. upsetting. Yeah, and so. This I've sort of said, okay, let's get this business part straight because I, the musician, not, I mean, three of my buddies are dead. I mean, gone. You know, yeah. uh, and so it's a problem for me, which I'm trying to solve right now. But anyway, so not only this, not only that, but then the last deal that was made, which was the Barbican deal for the uh, Can project, became a problem. Because you, you played a show on the Barbican um, two years ago now. Yeah, 2017. Right, yeah. And that was great. I mean, I had a great time. That's with um, Thurston Moore, Steve Shelley, yeah. um, uh, Deb Googe, um, James Sedward, Tom Relic, Valentino Ma, Pat Thomas. It was wonderful. And then you really, and you must, guys must know, and then you find out that there are um, people in these venues who really know what the hell they're doing. I mean, uh, stage people, uh, oh, yeah. engineers. I mean, it's like when my dad said to me uh, when I was a kid and a young man trying to paint, and I'm painting on some manila paper with some funky brushes. Mm-hmm. He says, well, try this watercolor paper with some uh, sable brushes. See what happens then. Completely different world. Given the tools to really yeah, do it well, right. yeah. So, was that the first time you played on a stage that big or at a venue? I think this Barbican so. is beautiful, yeah, beautiful, yeah, beautiful really venue. Great, great play. Uh, I think it might. I'm trying to remember. Well, I played the uh, I played in Wales mm. at uh, Festival Number Six, and I uh, that was. I don't know if it was. Well, I don't think you know. It wasn't as big as the Barbican, and and it was outdoors. Too, yeah, so. yeah. I want I want to jump all the way back because we have a ton of questions about okay. like playing shows now and all that stuff. But I actually do. I want to go back to the Hendrix show. If you could just because you you talked about like how you were making plans. How was a big deal that he was going to come and play? Yeah, yeah. So what what are your memories of that gig? What did it mean to you? You know, what, in terms of what you're working on at that time and all that stuff. I think that the big thing for me with the Hendrix show is 
his presence on stage and what was going to happen, how, how, how he was going to deal with this huge crowd. I mean, the crowd is, uh, forget how big the sports hall is, but it's, it's tremendous. Like, it's like Madison Square Gardens, basically. Mm-hmm. So my, my thinking was, well, how do you deal, not so much about the music, because I've already heard the music on record. I knew that I would sound, but how do you deal with this crowd? That becomes more important to me um, than anything. And it's, it's not that I know that I'm going to have a crowd that big anytime. It's just a matter of how do you how do you present yourself to a bunch of people here in, the, in this, and to watch him, uh, Redding and, and um, uh, Mitch Mitchell and uh, was no, it, Redding. No, Redding. Yeah. I think it was a good combination together, all three of them. I enjoyed I enjoyed that, uh, but that's the only thing I could think about. I'm so far up in the daggone up in the uh, I'm not close to the stage at all. All I can, I'm like looking from the upper balcony down on the stage. Do you remember that show having an effect on, you know, maybe, let's say, did you go to the studio the next day or whatever Most the next likely. time was? Most likely. Was was there any talk or did you feel any reverberations from that show into how you guys played? I felt energized, basically. Uh, I don't know if, uh, that's, that's January, right? January, so January mm-hmm. 69. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So January 69, because I think, because Thief was the last thing I did in Germany. Thief was the last song I did before I came back to the States. And that's actually 69 November or December, December. Yeah, so, so you're still in Germany for almost a whole year. Yeah. yeah. So I'm not sure what's going on there. All I can remember about the Hendrix show is the, the amount of energy I, I felt, you know, mm-hmm. to see him play. I mean, I'd heard him back in the, not, not, I never, never saw him in the States, but I heard his music, you know, the records back in the States. So, to see him live, and the idea of what he had done anyway in the in the on record, changed my idea about what uh, also what music could sound like, and also I think I got because I, I, I can remember talking to Jackie Liebesett about uh, I said to Jackie when I said Jackie um can you can, how about playing this uh, rhythm like this, and Jackie said okay get on the drums and show me. And I said, yeah, okay, Jackie, forget it. I do, you, know, you, you go ahead and play what you're going to play, and I'll just I'll go, I'll go along with it, you know. He, um, I, I can't say any more about, about Hendrix. I, all I know is, and all I remember is that he was, his take on, like, All Along the Watchtower, and uh, the, uh, the, which is the Dylan song, his take on things just emphasized that this band that I was with could play Almost anything we could get, it, we could probably get it together. The thing is so playful to me at some point because I'm not clear on what I am actually doing. I just know that I'm responding uh, possibly to, well, one, one thing I'm responding to is the music. And the next thing is to my thoughts. So we played um, Munich. I don't remember the. I just know we played. Well, in Munich, when we were in Munich, it has to be. It must be '69. Yeah, we're in Munich and um, Lamont Young. Mm-hmm. Lamont Young, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, but Lamont Young has set up this room in the. Uh, it's called Schwabo. It's called this. It's a student section of Munich. It's a student section of town. He had set up this room. We, Erman and I, and I forget who else was, went into. And it was mic'd. The room had been mic'd. And it had um, 
it had an overtone. It had a sound, a, a general. I don't know what it was a sound. General. There was a sound being projected in the room, but if you sat in the room and started to hum or to make a um, some kind of a sound, you would get this. Um, either three or four different tones would come. Once you found the right note, I would say, once you found it, you could make the third sound. You can make the third, almost like using um, a vocoder, I guess it would be. Yeah, yeah. So, so, but the room had, if I remember correctly, the room had four speakers in it. So I sat in there for a while and started, was trying to make some sounds to generate the news, this news, which I found to be more, the, the idea of what sound could do started to be more impressive yeah. to me. You know, I find it on stage now. You can find the sound that is not there, but it becomes the sound. You know, there's something happens all of a sudden. And that, to me, is like the magic of the music. Uh, um, like Jackie used to have these drum circles in Germany. I, I didn't participate in those, but I remember drum circles with drummers in New York. And I watched uh, African drummers where there's a change can come. Well, you're a drummer. The change can come all of a sudden from just somebody. The rhythm is the rhythm's going like that, and all of a sudden somebody goes inside that rhythm, and all of a sudden there's a, there's a third. The third rhythm appears. You know, mm -hmm. to me, this is the most exciting part of, the, of of music because you can introduce a drummer can introduce a, a, a sound, and as he's listening, can hear maybe the guitar, a guitar um, uh, stroke. Um, strum rather was it, which will change the the rhythm. Absolutely, which then, yeah, which reframes it, and which then the drummer can change the rhythm again inside of that. This is the thing, the the, the factor that I I look forward to. So when I'm listening to when I'm listening to Jackie playing, I can almost counter it, you know. And Jackie was able to do that by himself. Jackie when he recorded. He already heard the rhythm that he wanted to get to by overdubbing. So he would play sim like a simple format at the beginning, and then he'd come back and overdub it to get the new rhythm. He was he was amazing. I think. Was, I mean, the interplay between the two of you is absolutely incredible. Like between vocalist and drummer on those records, it's really I, a very special yeah, relationship. He, I think he was the one. I mean, he not that he was the only one because. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, find, yeah. I find drummers to be a key for me to be a key factor in the music or the rhythm section. Me too. They, yeah, of course. They they know what they might be. My love for for James Brown or something. You know, um, I was actually thinking about him a lot when reading some of your quotes before we came in here about how you know a lot of his best known songs, yes, have lyrics and are tell a story in their way. But often he's just kind of responding to ah, a rhythm, yeah, yeah and, and speaking and, and singing or <laughs> right. gesturing rhythmically right. in his own way. Yeah, I think I think I was going to ask if you found found yeah. a sort of if you found like you had something in common with that with what you were doing. Well, in camp. I, I um, rhythm is the for me is the the key factor, and I think drumming becomes uh, the drummer becomes the, one of the key instruments. But I I like the idea of like I'm like now I'm doing these um, this uh, more poetry thing this uh, spoken word thing, and uh, I play with a guy here. Um, in fact, we're doing we we got we're doing an he's doing an album he's included me in it, and his name is Luis Tovar and Luis Alpana Tovar, and he's um, a percussionist and he plays uh, 
He plays a lot of drums. He plays timbales. He plays the, he plays the, the, the set. He plays the, the kit. Uh, he plays the cajon. He plays. Yeah, he does. Yeah, he's pretty damn good. He's good. So, and he said to me, Malcolm he says, "You're on top of the rhythm, Malcolm. You know how to deal with the rhythm." And yeah. that's what I like about the. I like that idea. And the other side of that, though, uh, Mickey Caroli, uh, I'm fly, I fly into Dusseldorf, and we're doing uh, film music for Vim Vendors until the end of the world. Last Night's Sleep is the name of the song. And uh, uh, Renee Tenner's recorder, recording engineer. And I hadn't been back in the studio, and I think this is the first time back in the studio, maybe? 86, I think it is. And yeah. um, I wrote the lyric on the plane, and it was based on a friend of mine's daughter. I mentioned his name, Fred Brown's daughter, Fred Megan Brown's daughter. And so I get to the studio, and I sing this last night's sleep only to repeat. Oh, she holds green onions in her hand, talking to the sound of the band, the sound of the sparrow in the air, talking to the rising sun. So I'm saying this to, to Mickey, and Mickey starts to play the song, which is the first time I've ever, you know, first time for Ken and I to ever do anything within five minutes. Yeah. And and all of a sudden it just gelled, the whole damn thing gelled. There was only one part of it that didn't work. And Renee said to me, Malcolm, you know, I think you need to do a, an, either a sharp or a flat here or a flat or a sharp here. And I said, okay, let's do it again. And Renee said, no, we don't have to do that. Uh, and he goes over to the keyboard which is connected to the computer and hits the so, so the notations on the screen and that's it fix it very different from making music in the late 60s so, yeah yeah, yeah. So, all, 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 all of a sudden i said oh you don't need us anymore <laughs> which is a, which is one of the one of the things i uh, when when i did the hysterica album um i was at mute records and the mute records did not did not they just mute records let me have their facility to have the record um uh burned made, made, yeah. but they I don't think their name was on the record. But um the guy said to me, he says, you know, a guy came in, in here one day and said, you know, we don't need these musicians. Um we can do this music ourselves. And the manager said, they do the music. And we get the money. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm starting to, you know, you said, it's That's amazing. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's an insane, I don't know about the business of music, but I like the, I like the music. Similar thing, because Jackie's not on that piece uh, called um, She Brings the Rain. Yeah, yeah. And She Brings the Rain, that day Mickey and I had gone to the studio together. And that, that piece was dedicated to his, his sister, actually. Oh, you know that's what that. Okay, which I found to be kind of because I, I, she was, she was, uh, I liked her. Thought she was a girlfriend at the time, but she, she kind she's of, the one on the cover of the Roxy Music yeah, album, right? Yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> didn't I didn't know about that until years later, you know? Yeah, but, but she was quite, quite a, a friend at the time, and wow. um, that was actually dedicated to her. So I wrote that piece. I wrote that. Uh, she brings the rain was written in in in, in Cologne. But I, what's happened, like I mentioned before about the uh, the shelled creatures, the first one of the first things I wrote as a just as a story, I find that I write I write poems and write stories, 
And uh, I remember, um, this is a segue, almost, because I was about to say, there's a photograph of, um, I think it was R.E.M., uh, lead singer on stage with a music stand in front of him. Yeah, yeah, he does Kelly, that. Yeah, yeah, totally. But that's, when I started performing, I started doing that because uh, I wanted to make sure I knew the lyric and I wanted to make, because I don't uh, remember, like, uh, of course, people yeah. like to, and it also gives me the opportunity to go away from the lyric, that I can just change up, I can move something around on the page yeah. and say, well, so <laughs> it said outside my door, I know, let's say outside the floor or something. I want, I want to change something. I want something, uh, I don't want to be stagnant. So it gives me that's yeah. license to do whatever I want to do that way. Well, so, yeah. No, it's, I mean, I think that's beautiful because you're playing some of these songs that you wrote now. It's going to be 50 years this year. <laughs> and so the <laughs> idea, though, that's something that has been, years. I know, it's real, but the... the the idea that something you that has been set in stone in one way in a recording for half a century is still mutable and you can still have fun with it and still do new things with it. I think that's like such a beautiful thing about performing and that's, such an incredible thing. And I think it's really you, awesome that you're doing that right now. Do you find now. that with your music? Do you find that to be the case now? Oh, we're doing that a lot with the band. We're coming up with all these sort of different arrangements for our old material and, and trying a bunch of different things. And it's like some things are a little bit different every night. And it... um. As a performer, I think that makes things so much more interesting and exciting as well. I didn't realize that when I first started. As I said, before, I'm, uh, I'm in a church choir starting, right? And so I didn't realize about the fact that if you possibly get on stage, there may be some different things that happen or that you the band decides before, and well, let's do something that we haven't done before. Let's just we'll, we'll vamp it or something. So... 1969, we're in Zurich, and we're playing the Showspiel House in Zurich to Prometheus. We're doing Prometheus. So, which is a play that can, at the time, was contracted to sort of perform incidental music for almost as like an orchestra for exactly, this play. Right, and that's and that's uh, <laughs> under the uh, adaptation is by Heinrich Müller, and so um, we show up at the Showspiel House, and I'm the thing about it, it's in German. I I'd heard about Prometheus before. <coughs> But not, not, I really didn't, I never read about Prometheus. So I, I'm looking at the stage set and I'm saying to myself, Jesus, what the hell, what's going on on this stage set, you know? And I'm trying to get an idea about the play. And we have to come on and play in places that I, I don't even remember, I don't even remember <laughs> where our cues were. The things I remember about it is Holga has finally gotten, gotten the, um, the tech department to build them these huge speakers. And I remember that um, there's a, some kind of a strike possibly going to happen before the show starts. There's a, a, I think backstage there's some kind of a problem with new contracts and all kinds of stuff. So we play, and then we decided that we, the, uh, after the end of the play, we, we asked, we opened the theater, they opened the theater up for us to play for an hour or so. And I have some guy in the front row. As soon as that happens, the theater closes down and they open the doors. And everybody comes running into the theater. And, but, okay, opening night, and you might have heard this already, opening night, the show's over, we finish, everybody goes home. Next morning, we all we arrive at, uh, at the front. There's a place right in front of the theater where there's a kiosk, you know, a newspaper kiosk. 
And we were looking and want to look what, what the papers have said about us. And the Zurich Zeitung says, these musicians playing electric instruments, sitting on wooden chairs, should be sitting on electric chairs with wooden <laughs> instruments. That was our that was the key factor. So the next night for opening, we had the place filled. The place was filled with people. But it was kind of funny. We sort of said, I, I had to laugh because Sound like a good ad to me, you know. Amazing. So it seems like with the way you're talking about a lot of this can stuff is there's some ideas, but a lot of it is sort of improvisational in in the moments and and all the shows that I was in, there was no plan. So then this this is my <laughs> wow. question. Now you have to remember, I'm the only English speaking, non-German understanding person. The band might have had more of a may, may know what was going on. They might have known it, but for me, I was shooting it. I was I was just going with the going with what I could do. You know. So okay. So I think with so much up in the air or figuring out in real time, sometimes that can go not as well as as one might hope. That's right. So do you remember any shows that maybe didn't land or like that you you guys weren't gelling, connecting the way that obviously you guys could. For me, it's hard to say whether they worked or not because I wasn't thinking about notation or how uh, or what the sound was supposed to sound like. I was not thinking about. I think maybe maybe a, a good point would be no one threw tomatoes at the time, <laughs> and no one screamed and yelled, "Get off the stage!" People came every night to hear what we had to do, and that's the, that's the after show. You know, it seemed like we were received very well. I mean, I, to be honest, I did not. Okay, anytime there was arguments about the music, it was in German, and that was after the fact. That would be, that would be, and and uh, so I wasn't akin to that. I wouldn't know. I know. Okay, uh, we played it. I think I don't know. It was called the Black Hawk or the Black. It was at the airport. This is a whole difference. We had to play. We were going to do a gig at the airport in Zurich. We were asked to play at this club. And we got to the club, we set up, we got everything ready. And the first note we played, I wish we maybe got to the first stanza. The club owner said, no, shut, <laughs> shut us down completely, told us to get out. He said, no, no, we don't have, we're not gonna, uh, I, all I remember is that halfway through the song, we were packing up and getting out of there. <laughs> was that devastating at the time or was it, you didn't care, didn't whatever? Care. Part of the deal. Yeah, you know, we got paid. Oh, all right, all right, yeah. So, so, so I mean, he just said we we can't handle it here. Um, we played a we played. I'm trying to remember that place. We played for a guy who owned this huge meat company. Played out in this patio, a swimming pool. There was a swimming pool, and all this meat. You know, like all these cold cuts and shrimp and drinks and stuff. And this is this has to be in '68 because it's we're it's we're all new. I remember Hildegard was there and Ermin and, and and we drive up in uh, Holger's van and some other cars. And uh, I tried to do um, Mustang Sally. <laughs> I tried to do Mustang Sally. Get on your feet. And I didn't know the fucking word. I just, just started Mustang <laughs> Sally. And, and that Ermin was playing. I don't think we had any concepts at all. The, con- all, the only way, the, the live stuff was completely different than studio. We just got out there. 
I, I mean, I remember, I don't know where, I, I think it was at the, at the uh, museum. And I think, I don't remember the band playing. I, I know, I remember me being on stage, or on a stage, and there was this, like, punching bag, like a swinging bag, you know, about the, like a swinging in front of me. I was, I had to, it was like, almost like I had to avoid this thing coming in, hitting me. And I, and it looked, when I looked back, I said, well, that's pretty offensive. You know, I don't know what the hell that was all about. Am I supposed to be some kind of a, and then uh, the Heincher incident. And I never knew about Heincher until the newspaper said something about it. Never knew, I didn't know he was some kind of a uh, popular music person. Uh, um, Can you describe the incident? Because I'm not familiar with. He was or is a musician, pop musician, German pop musician. And so um, the incident happens where we're playing this gig at the university in Cologne. And uh, unbeknownst to me, Can has stated or said to the audience that they can come up on stage and either perform or come. I don't know what that was about. So we're doing something, and I don't even know what the music was. I don't know. We're just playing. And all of a sudden, there's this rush of people to the stage, which I decide I'm running. I'm not going to stay up here. I'm getting off the stage. I leave. And in the newspaper the next day, it said Malcolm Mooney. Well, I don't know if it said Malcolm Mooney or Desi, because I was going under the name also of Desi Barama, which is actually a tune from um, the Nubian musician Hamza Laldan. Uh, meaning peace. So I took that name on when I was traveling. So these folks rush the stage. I leave. The newspaper says, he acted like Heinche. And so what the fuck? Who the hell's Heinche? <laughs> so, so I didn't know who Heinche was. So it didn't really offend me that much until I found out that people, uh, he was some kind of a snooty star. Or something, okay. or something. Mm-hmm. That's one. The other incident is my, that I think I, I'm credited for is we had done some music. Uh, we hadn't gotten paid. We had done some music for a company. And we're in Munich. This is back in back to the same time that um, we're supposed to do that gig in Munich. Also, also um, the um, Lamar Young, Young thing. thing. And so we're in this restaurant. And uh, the guy who owns us the money walks in. And I decide we're going we're gonna to get our money somehow. And I grabbed the telephone handle, the receiver, and I'm about to hit him over the head with the telephone. He says, you better give us our money. You better give us our money. And uh, I think three or four days, there we got the money. <laughs> but I don't like to take credit for that because, you know, it could be considered offensive in a way, you know. Mm-hmm. But we got our money. <laughs> <laughs> and, and uh, you know, I sometimes think of the guys who, they, who, who I've heard like gangster rapper guys who said, we'll show up at the um, contract negotiations with a couple of pistols. Maybe that'll maybe that'll be the way we'll satisfy, we'll get the job done, we'll get the, <laughs> we'll get the right terms, you know. And then also at, at that same at that same show, not this, not the same, on the same day at Munich, I get called the N-word by an American, and Ehrman leaps off the stage and grabs the guy, which I thought was to my I said, to my rescue comes Ehrman. He's not, like, no, he's not that tall. And he, <laughs> he grabs the guy. Rest, and, and, uh, and, and that was that satisfied the day that the guy left, I think. You know? 
So, Malcolm, you mentioned that you <clears throat> kind of first heard, like, monster movie in New York, like, after you left. And I'm just kind of curious, and it was a question that I I'd put down, the, the kind of hallucination. You've been telling us incredible stories over a two-year period, a whole road trip. You make incredible music. You go back to New York and you start teaching. And I just wonder, like, in that period, in those, you know, first couple of years, you're back in New York. How does how does it feel? How do you think about all your travels? I'm not thinking about it at all. Yeah. When I find the Can album, I'm walking down 8th Street in Manhattan. And I, I just... What year is it? Is it? it has to be 72. So you're already in New York for two years at this point. Yeah. But I'm walking down and there's a record store on 8th Street, on the south side of 8th Street. And I remember there's... I thought there were some steps you go down to the store. So I was going, I, I was just looking. I wasn't even looking for anything in particular. I just went in and I said, well, maybe, I wonder if there's any music that, you know, if, uh, and I don't even know why I was in the C section of this thing, but I found Monster Movie. <laughs> Monster Movie on Liberty. Liberty right. out of London. I said, oh, shit. I didn't sign off on this. Because uh, I remember the day that I left Germany, if I'm not mistaken, they were trying to get me to sign something. Well, there was a guy, Abby Oferum was a guy's name, who was the, uh, and I think it's in the book also. He was the manager. He, he, wanted, to yeah, be yeah. The, he wanted to be the manager. He's he be, manager. And he became the manager. I didn't like him. I didn't, the first time I met him, I thought, oh boy, this is a, I can't trust him. I was smoking cigarettes and a little herb, well, not herb hashish. And I didn't like his, uh, and I was trying, first of all, I was trying to not smoke anymore. And I didn't like the way his approach to how he was going to get us to be, I'm not a big druggy person. So I got leery about his approach to the band. And and one of the reasons I didn't want to be with the band any longer was that I had a problem about being in Germany for such a long time. And in the meantime, Signing off on this stuff, I was not prepared to do because it was in German. The whole, the whole kind. So All I, the legal I, stuff. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't understand. But I didn't like his demeanor. I didn't like him at all. Anyway, so I, I go back to the states and I'm down in this, in this record store. I see the record, and I immediately, well, not immediately, but I call or I fax or I do something to Hildegard to say, "What's what's up with this?" And then I find out. I'm told, I didn't find it, I'm told that they've been in legal battle with uh, Abby Oferum about this album because he has taken the masters and sold them to Liberty International without permission. So I don't get my first check, I don't get my first royalty check until 1977. Wow. Like when you get home, did did you? How did you describe your time with this crazy German rock band to your family or to your friends? And I think because the communication and the media was so different, did they even believe you, or did they were they like? No, I don't know if they even cared about <laughs> uh, my craziness. Uh, they were more concerned about my health. Yeah, and um, I was too. When people ask me about that, because uh, at one point in uh, Can Press, it says Malcolm Mooney had a nervous breakdown. So 
I wrote to uh, Hildegard and then I said, is this, does this sell records? Do people have to know about this part of my life? And uh, finally, I believe they took that away out of the, out of the uh, messaging. Um, so when people asked me about it later on, I kept saying, well, they didn't have any Frank's Louisiana hot sauce. And since I had to leave on that note, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> so that made, yeah. that, that made it easier for me to explaining the situation. Uh, and I, I'll go, I'll even go to that point where the last show in Zurich, because I, I, I remember, this is what changed, this is the thing, one of the big things that changed my mind about playing with Can was in a, a rehearsal we were having in Zurich for the uh, Schauspielhaus, and I was late to the rehearsal. And I was, I came in the, in the front door of the theater and I was standing in the back of the theater and I heard Mickey and Ehrman and Holger, Jackie playing. And I said, they don't need me. The music sounds pretty good. And the other part about that uh, whole thing was every night and every day for a year and a half, up to well, 18 months, 19 months, I had been improvising. There's a certain amount of ringing out that you must feel at a certain because improvising is a very full body, full mind, full soul Super sort of thing. Present. Yeah, yeah. It's, it was. It, it it really got to the point where I knew I was at the end. Of well, this the, actually there was a there is a quote in the book, if you don't mind, that that says, "I think you're sort of talking maybe about this era or towards the end of your time with Ken." that you said nothing at first was planned. Then I became self-critical of my approach and tried to eliminate the unpredictable. Um, yeah, was that because the improvisation was too much? Was it got, drawing... You got too much. Um, uh, and, that, and that goes back, and that goes to, rather, the um, the fact that I use a music, my music on a music stand. Yeah. Therefore, I can relate. I can, this way I can relate to... Um, I could say physical, something that's there um, that I can improvise from instead of trying. Because if I have some form, if I have something in front of me that I've written, I can always go over top of that. I can always improvise on some other structure that's there instead of trying to come up with, with yeah, that's right. Yeah. Like out of nowhere, out of just right. no. from yourself, yeah. yeah. I mean, the days at the, the days on the, um, in, in uh, Zurich, um, where I am uh, uh, so far into improvisation uh, and, and so far into uh, performance, I mean one of the one of the key fact two things one of the key things was that before the show, um, I forget the name of the place because I just mentioned just somebody else. There's the the the, the cafe where Dada um, actually is supposed to have started. It's down in, in uh, near the Zurich Z. I forget the name. There's a huge, there's a huge um, coffee cafe, coffee shop at the bottom of the hill there. So why we go in there when they have coffee at the before we even before the before the show opens, and we go in and have coffee, and I go to every table in the in the cafe and tell them about that we're playing um, at the Schauspielhaus. I just go, you know, just start up a conversation. And I don't know how many tables there were, but there's like maybe 50, 60 tables in there. And I say that. And so that's, it all becomes improvised at that point. 
So when after I see the band, when I see the band playing like that in the last, this, this is before we just about to drive back. We're gonna go back in the next week or half, maybe a week or so. We're gonna go back to back to Cologne, and I see the band playing that way. And we're scheduled in this particular piece of time. Is Abby Ophrum's coming into the into the mix? Uh, we get a job. We get it. We get a, 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 um, a. We're supposed to go to Hamburg, and during Christmas. And I'm having. I'm saying to myself, I don't need to smoke or drink anymore for the next 25 days. I'm saying I'm going cold turkey. Yeah. Um, this is when everything to me ends. I don't need to be here any longer. I go. Let me get out. Of, go back to uh, back to the states. Um, yeah. So, Malcolm, but, how did you how did you start teaching? How did you get into that? And um, what made you pursue it? And what have you learned from it? One of the things I learned um, in uh, in this teaching idea was um, the thing called the IEP, which is Individual in Educational Plan, where no one starts at the same level. Basically, somebody might be good at, uh, well, in this case, somebody might be good at drawing, or somebody may be good at color, somebody may be good compositionally, uh, or some may not have any experience at all drawing and stuff. So I... Take that information in. I guess I'm give a, usually give a questionnaire. I'm going, going to go backwards this way. I give a this is for um, university and stuff. I give a questionnaire to find out where the levels are, and then I I go along with them. It's it's an improvised thing too. It's uh, I go along with their with their structure is, and then um, I make up a plan uh, for them to follow based on what they already know, mm-hmm. and not try to push them somewhere where they haven't been. Yeah, I try to take them from where they are. To a new point. What people have been in any of these points were, again, it's a little bit hard to know what Can's reputation was, uh, you know, without how that traveled. If, you know, because they, even when we were growing up, they were still somewhat quote unquote obscure, even if a well known obscure. Um, would, would your pedigree as like someone as who was there at the start of this, you know, sort of incredible musical thing, did that ever come up? Did that ever mean something to to some people, or is that only more? And has that been just in more modern times? I'm living in L.A., working on my master's degree. Um, uh, I we get I get the call to go to to um, German to to France to do the Right Time album. I think, but something else is going on then too. Because when did they do Aspect? Um, that's ninety. That was oh yeah. So. Um, I go. I go to. Um, I'm, I'm married at the time, um, and I take off from Los Angeles and go down to the south of France to do the Right Time album. And I remember it's the first time. It's the first time I'm back to see the Can members. '86. That's November because it's Thanksgiving time in the U.S. And I fly into Nice, and I. I land and I get off the plane and there's uh, Mickey and I believe Jackie. But the interesting part about it is this woman running around with a camera taking oh. taking video. And I say, who the hell is this woman? This to discover it's Mickey's wife, uh, Shirley. And... Um, we, she's a wonderful woman. We drive out to Mickey's place, and um, if, I said, "Geez, it feels like uh, I haven't left." 
It was you know, really amazing. Quite, quite amazing to, to be back. And that's how, and, and um, although some some critics say Right, right Time was a good album, uh, I thought it was an interesting album. Um, um, like a new child is the one is one of my favorites. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's great. And like a new child is a, is a I mean, um, psychiatric. That's the other part. That one uh, below this level, below this level. And, and I've never I've never done those uh, that right time album. You never played it live. Never played those it live. Songs? No, never done that. Why not? Um, I'm trying to remember what's on the right time album. Uh, like a new child. Uh, um, I'm saying, is there a reason that you you have stayed away from them as you done no, shows more it's, recently? It, um, the, um, I think that to me that was more of a, of a can. No, you know, this is '86. I think it's more that these songs were really uh, developed by Can so much that they don't. I don't know if any band can play them. I don't know if anybody yeah, can play them okay. the, way, the way I want them to be. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not that they can't. I just um, and I, and the guys I've been playing with in um, in um, uh, California, um, uh, with the exception of a few members, I think are stuck on these um, on those um, yeah. outside my door um, yeah, yeah. train. Um, uh, uh, she brings rain, thief. You do right. You do yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, I think. Which when is a good you, point you make, and I mean, yeah. I, um, uh, I might look into that because they are some good. I like them. You know. Yeah, definitely. You know? Uh, what did you, whether now or or in real time, if you heard some of the, you know, the albums in between you leaving in 1969 and coming back in right time, did you keep up with Can's music? Were you able to hear it? Did you like it? Did you? Not feel connected to it? Did you feel connected to it? Um, um, I, d- I did. Uh, um, my favorite out of this so far has been um, Mother Sky. Okay, yeah, yeah. Was, I mean, I'm a big fan of that one. It's an incredible song. Yeah, yeah and I did that one live at um, the Bar- Yeah, Barbican. I, I looked that yeah, up. Yeah, 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 it's cool. I, I like, I like, I like the rhythm thing. You know, I mean, that was my my niche, niche on that. I think he. I didn't understand. I tried to find the lyric, and I listened carefully to get the lyric. I don't know what Damo's talking about. <laughs> so I have, a, I guess, another question: When did you start doing shows again? Like when you play the Echo and when you play Desert Days? When did this? When did playing live a couple times a year come back into your life? Do you remember what the oh, first show you did? Yeah, well, it it came back in the, when I I was traveling back and forth, but this is uh, nineteen, it's two thousand. This would be 1998. Yeah. Uh, because I was dating a woman in California, and um, I happened to meet Mark Weinstein, Amoeba, Amoeba Records, mm. uh, the, the guy that owns the, one of the of course. owners of, uh, and Mark. So I'm, you know, I'm a big deal, Malcolm, Mooney, blah, 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 telling this girl, you know, I'm the greatest. <laughs> well, I didn't say, I didn't actually say that, but uh, I like what, I like what, uh, um, Muhammad Ali said, I'm the greatest. So um, I said, let's, I said, yes, I said, a record store in town? Oh, yeah, there's a record store. Uh, so we go up to Amoeba up one in Berkeley, and uh, and I walk in, and I go to the can section. I said, well, this is what I do. This is the stuff I do. And I take some of the records, CDs, up to the front desk, and I said, do you give artists uh, a discount? And Mark is there. And he says, you're Malcolm Mooney. I said, yeah, he says, 
man, listen, I, if, if you if you play, I'll give you some money. You just play with us. I said, I said, some talking, whatever, you know. And that's how that started. Well, this this kind of leads into one of the bigger, and I think one of the more final questions that we have, which is something that you know we're twelve years into a career. You are, you know, no offense, fifty plus, uh, and so you know from that from that, some of that stuff that you did, uh, in, in you know in Cologne and that sort of initial burst of of creativity of almost a sort of manic energy of just kind of figuring it out in the moment. How do you? As someone who who was part of these moments, not necessarily thinking about 50 years in the future, just thinking about the inputs, the musical vibe, when that moment has become a, like a sacred text for somebody who's who's listened to it so many times and has all these attachments, how do you honor that original moment, but also somehow able to, to move forward with it yourself so you're not just doing historical reenactment? You're trying to do something something more in the spirit of that moment. Do you find that hard? Do you not think about it? How does, particularly now, is is it's fast coming up on like the 50th anniversary of a lot of these, a lot of these nights, a lot of these sessions. Um, good question. I, um, as like I said before, one of the one of the big things for me is trying to change. Like you were talking about before about Europe, trying to change. Are these um, songs into new formats? I guess it would be a new, new um, adding, adding and subtracting from what they what they were done, because um, um, one of the things that I I try to do with the band, all the bands I play with, is give them each member enough space to be themselves. Um, you can play a Mickey Caroli riff if you want to, but I would prefer that if you do, if you play the Mickey Caroli riff, go somewhere with your own, yeah. you do your own, make your own music. Mm-hmm. Inside, there might be a structure. And I think a Hysterica album, which was done later, I forget what year that is, 2002 or something like that. The Hysterica album, to me, is one of my favorite albums. Um, which is done with the Tenth Planet, um, because it's it, it's not cans. It's it's I I might be can, but it's not can. You know, yeah. I all I do is try to start a direction. Yeah, and then the, the members of the band are smart enough and and musically talented enough to pick up the charge. They're able to to go That's with that. That's beautiful. You know? And this gives them. See, uh, um, I was telling somebody yesterday. You know, I had a friend here from from uh, um, stayed here from um, Boston. He's one of my students at Wil- when I was teaching at Wentworth Institute. And um, uh, I was trying. To, I was telling him. I said, you know, one important thing to me is okay. I've been fifty years doing this, off and on, and I want some other. Want to help some other people. I mean, people get on my bandwagon because they like what Can did, you know, basically. But if they're if they're willing enough to give up their time to be with me, I want to give up my time for them to get do something for themselves in the band, you know. Um, like I said at the beginning, I'm just one link in this in, yeah. this, in this band. Well, you know, you know? I guess one one last question I had is when you're singing, whether it's like hysterica or like you know can stuff. 
when you're on stage in that moment, do you think back to when you were making those recordings initially, or are you just purely in the moment of singing it? No, I'm with the band that's on the stage. You're with the band on the stage. Yeah, that's yeah, great. You know, um, I like um, the echo. Then we did the yeah, echo. Yeah, you're, you're just in the echo. Yeah, yeah. You're in the moment. Yeah. These the, and those guys. Can I ask how do you do that? Because I find it hard to not. Sometimes when we're playing one of our older songs, I find it hard not to. It's n- definitely not as does not have as much history. Is not as shrouded in this historical context the way that can and '69 and Cologne is. But you know, sometimes I think back to like our practice space days and like. If it's sometimes it's poignant to me that like, oh shit, we're playing to this huge crowd. And when we were writing the song, it was in this really shitty practice space. <laughs> yeah. So I, so I sometimes I find it hard to stay in the moment. And I think my my stuff isn't even as sexy as, as yours, your, your memories. I'm sorry. Um, how is that just instinctual? Is that is, or just. Well, well, I'm always looking for um, some new material for the bands that I've been playing with and actually uh, to even change, to change it up. That's why I'm trying to, I'm trying to restructure this can stuff for me. I I might, I might be living on the laurels of the past, but I'm trying to uh, move as much as uh, away from that. Yeah. Uh, If I, I'm trying trying to remember. Um, When I go on stage, Oh, okay, I, give, I, give, I got okay. So we're doing the Barbican show. And uh, in the front row of the Barbican show, there is a guy wearing a T-shirt. Oh, God. I thought it, I thought it was, uh, it says Hitler on it or something. I think, I, I'm, trying, I'm trying to remember that. It was somebody that you don't really want to deal with, you know? Sure. So... But that, and so I'm looking at it, and and it hits me when I'm on stage, and and but this it's like there's two thousand people, one guy with a shirt on, which you don't have to pay attention to basically, and I said to myself, what is that about? But it, at the time, the band strikes up, you have no time to really deal with that, yeah, with that information. Yeah. Okay, so weeks, uh, the weeks later. Or two weeks later, the guy writes me an email, and he said, "Man, you were wonderful, but the T-shirt didn't say that. The T-shirt didn't say the T-shirt was actually anti-Nazi. It was it had some, <laughs> it had some other information on the T-shirt which I couldn't see. Yeah, and I said, "Man, you know, you blew my mind in the front row there like that." I said, uh, uh, "I thought it said something." I said, "No, no, 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 no." And I think it was something like anti-Donald Trump or something. Okay, something, yeah, yeah. And but but at the time, so uh, what I was trying to say at this point is like. One does not have time to do a performance and get upset. Uh, it's, it's so things are going so quickly. You one don't have, you don't have time to focus on the negative. If you're trying to do a good show, you know, um, you're in the moment. In the, you're exactly, just there. It's the moment. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, all yeah there. it's all there. And I, I, um, I got you know, like the guy sent me a note and very thankful and stuff. Um, but I, I I think about these things now. I never knew I was going to be in front of her. And this was not my aim, you know. I had no. And it's 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 thrilling. I get up there now, and um, and in the I think the energy of the band that I play with, I mean that sparks me, and that's a that's a. I don't have to. I don't worry, you know. I don't worry. 
Um, are you playing anytime soon, Malcolm? Do you have any plans to play live? Um, yeah, I'm supposed to be playing in Los Angeles sometime in July, possibly. We may be there. We'd love to come. Going to go to Zebulon? Oh, yes. Oh, I venue. would love that's to. That's a great so, venue. Can we come? Please. And then... Um, actually, actually, I'm supposed to play... They want me to play there for, for, I can't bring a band, I can't pay for a band because they want to pay me a certain amount of money. So they want me to do a poet. A poet. Okay. You bring your shit, come jump on stage. And We'd, uh, we play, we play <laughs> we'll for play. free. We'll yeah. play. Yeah. We'll if help. We're home, absolutely. <laughs> I play with you. We'll help. Absolutely. Yeah. We'd so like to. And then uh, website. You have a website. Do I? People can follow stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, MalcolmMooney.com. Okay. Thank you so much. This has been absolutely um, a joy and an incredible honor. for us. Chris and thank Chris, you. thank you for being coming. Thanks very much. Man. Hell yeah. That was our conversation with Mr. Malcolm Mooney. What a guy. Uh, yeah, I mean... What a thrill to talk to him, to be welcomed into his home. After we talked, he took us to his basement, showed us some artwork that he was working yeah, on, some which paintings, was really cool. Which are, yeah. I, and I, he also, right when we arrived, he, um, as we mentioned in the intro, that this was right around the time when FOTB had come out. And I think he wasn't necessarily up on Vampire Weekend, which is totally fine. Yeah. Uh, but I think we showed him the Kimmel performance yeah, yeah. of Sunflower. Yeah, he was, was very, and he was very impressed. And yeah. It, which I thought was like, you know, very cool. And he was just sort of showed how open and, and warm he was. And uh, yeah, what, a, what an awesome experience. Hope you guys enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, it was great. Um, if you've ever listened to The Road Taken before, you know that at the end of every it's episode... It's mailbag time. We answer a question or two from the mailbag. CT, I know you're still not getting into the... Well, now, see, now we're in the UK. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like uk.gmail.com or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And it's just, you know, I, I don't know. You man. don't have... Um, you never installed pop-up blocker on your laptop from 2002? You know, I tried that recently, but it's kind of like <laughs> fucking with some some of my favorite websites. Okay, so if you have any questions about touring or really anything at all for CT Night, if you need to get a message to CT about something, feel free to send an email. I will forward it to him or I will read it out loud to him if he can't get access to an email account. Um, the road taken at the ringer.com. This first question is from Niraj. Subject title, Peckham Pen Pal. Ooh, I think this one is going to be more towards you. That's what you would think. Ooh. <laughs> but Peckham is where I used to live in, in London. Yeah. I, I lived there from 2015 to the beginning of 2018, or I guess middle of 2018. But uh, yeah, Peckham Pen Pal. Hey, CT and Bayo, and then in parentheses, in that order. Really enjoying the pod. <laughs> I really empathized with what CT said a few episodes ago where he mentioned finding people make mistakes a really interesting part of a live show. I was at the Islington Assembly oh, Hall no. morning show. And Did sp- I fuck up? Is this another CT mistake? I, I didn't realize that. <laughs> 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 well, I didn't know that we were going to talk about this in the intro. Oh, I should say we're still in Manchester, that it was going to be heavily focused on. That's going to be CT fuck up hour. Anyways. I was at the Islington Assembly Hall morning show and spotted CT missed the boy sample at the beginning of 2021 parentheses. Sorry, CT. And shake oh, his that head. One's okay. I can live with that one. Okay. And shake his head when he realized what had happened. But I was really intrigued by it at the time and it had made me wonder, how have you learned over years of touring to process mistakes when playing live? Did they bother you more when you were starting out than they do now? 
Do you think about them again later in the set? Or have you always dealt with them in the same way? Loving the show. Keep it up. Niraj. P.S. Bayo, do you plan on returning to Peckham when you're next in town? I DM'd you to challenge you to a game of squash a while back. I'm still game if you are. Well, this question obviously isn't for you because you never fuck up. I, I do. <laughs> no. well, yes, I do. I, I, yeah, yeah. Playing into the, <laughs> the roles that we've created here. Um, great question. It was Niraj. Niraj, yeah. Thank you for your question, Niraj. <laughs> I think the experience of making a mistake is quite similar now as it was in 2007. I would say it was more frequent in 2007. Oh, yeah. But let's say, let's take the stick drop from last night's performance. It's a bummer. There's a little bit of self-reproachment in the initial aftermath. Like, fuck. In this particular case, often there's enough going on that it doesn't like completely derail a song, say. Oh, yeah. You know, when that happens, that's generally the equipment's fault and that's when I hulk out and, you know, Mm -hmm. that whole bit. Um, But I think a, a larger lesson of touring over the years is you live to play another day. I think that's true. And if you zoom in and you live to play another note, you live to play another song. I don't think people buy tickets or I don't buy tickets. And I, my impression is that most people don't buy tickets to see, you know, a perfect performance. You know, obviously they want people to try and not phone it in and like, and play poorly. But I I think, yeah, I, I guess mistakes I've learned over the years is are bad. And I don't, actively pursue them. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they happen. I feel like the one, <laughs> the missing the boy in Islington was probably just a function of being nervous in terms of yeah, like, yeah. that was one of the first performances of that song. And, um, and that sample in particular is so, it makes me extra tweaky because it's kind of out there Definitely. where there's like not much happening yeah. and, you know, I can get in my own head and mm-hmm. uh, you, you just, it gets away from me. But, um, I remember there was the one, and this is not putting anyone on blast, but I saw the Arcade Fire at Madison Square Garden years ago. And it was early in their cycle, I believe for the suburbs. Yeah, yeah. And they had, they started a song, Sprawl, I believe Sprawl 2. And something happened with the, with the loops or something they were triggering and they just like kind of stopped it, kind of looked at each other, fixed it and went on. And honestly, when it came in the second time as like, and everyone was grooving and, yeah. and it hit, I thought like everyone, in some ways it was like the experience was more joyful than if it had just gone right the first time. Yeah. Um, and that was, that I always took a lot of solace in that uh, with a, you know, a band playing MSG mm-hmm. that that happened. And yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I think mistakes are not great, but ultimately, if anything kind of add to it, as long as they're not happening too frequently. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, I'm going to promise for the rest of the season not to select any questions <laughs> that focus on your fuck ups. I mean, on a, on, I mean, you know, when was the last mistake you made? Let's see if. I mean, I miss notes all the time. How many notes you missed last night? Ten, maybe. Oh, great, dude! I fucked yeah. up once, maybe twice. Last, I know, no, exactly. definitely twice last yeah, yeah. night. And you messed miss up ten notes. times. No, yeah. exactly. That's exactly this is, right. That's some, this is and some... I will say, I will say, Naraj, I don't play squash. I play oh, racquetball. Yeah, this is, this is the, the second part. So in the UK where I lived, racquetball is not as big of a sport, and um, there were slight differences in the UK version of racquetball and the US version of racquetball. And so UK racquetball decided to rebrand as squash 57, but it was an extremely unsuccessful rebranding. And that's what I would post on Instagram about was my, my time and my history of playing squash 57. But I don't know. I I loved living in Peckham and I miss it a lot. And I actually haven't been back down there since I've been, and I've been back to London a couple of times, but 
I'm not ready, man. I miss it too much. We had a really good racquetball relationship for a while there. We did. Yeah, it was really great. Um, you know, I've had picked another question, but I think we're we're we've done enough for this week. You know, like and subscribe on good old iTunes. CT, you got anything to plug? I know we uh, alluded to me having something to plug on last week's episode, but first off, do you have anything to plug? Um, not really. Woke up this morning, found the Nets beat the Trailblazers last night, which is great. So we're 500. That feels great. Oh, that's good. Um, I probably want to plug the same thing you want to plug, but okay. I think it's probably better if you uh, introduce it. So I have formed a new band with my friend Mike. He puts out music under the name Fort Rameau. Our band is called CYM, and our first EP is coming out this Friday on Errol Alkin's Fantasy Sound. And I think it's worth, it's obviously very important to say that my dear friend, Christopher C.T. Thompson, slaps the tubs beautifully on one of the tracks. And uh, I think it's also worth noting, actually, that these are three of four recordings that have emerged since we've started working out of our home studio in Eagle Rock, Los Angeles, CNC Music Factory. And you may be wondering what the fourth song is that has emerged from that. And that would be, and we've been asked about this a couple of times, so this also works a okay. little bit for the mailbag, is the uh, the Road Taken theme song, which we made together as we were putting the season together. So CYMEP out this Friday. I hear um, there's going to be something really cool with the vinyl edition. Yes, it's a mirrored vinyl sleeve. Oof, and I think it's going to be a beautiful um, object. I haven't seen it yet, though. So I'm. You've seen renderings or. I haven't really seen I've renderings. Heard, that, heard, that okay. I've heard it's going to look cool. But also, and Fantasy is with a PH, correct? Yeah, PH. So that makes sound. me think of Fantasy Tour, which is a website I used to partake in, which was almost like fantasy football, but for fish tour. Oh, oh, yeah. So, I never even made that. Okay. So there is kind of a, a live music <laughs> element to it. But uh, yeah, CYM. It's very influenced by Can, among other people, too, though. So wow. I think it's really appropriate, so appropriate. to be uh, giving it a shout out. Anything else? Well, yeah, I wanted to plug uh, the debut EP from CYM oh, that's coming you. out next Friday, which I slapped the tubs beautifully. I don't even know which, which the, what's the song. It's track three called Super Can. Okay. Yeah, so that's what I want to plug, too. All right. Well, next week, we have Mr. Albert Hammond Jr. on the pod. We'll still be in Europe. Looking forward to seeing you then. Uh, until next time, I'd like to leave you with a quote by Gilbert K. Chesterton, nice. who was also known as the Prince of Paradox. Ooh. Here's his quote. New roads, new ruts. See you next week. <laughs>